How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study in God's word, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure they're in fellowship and ready to study the word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed so grateful that we can be here tonight. We're grateful because we have your word, and your word which tells us who we are, tells us about creation, tells us that we are sinners because of Adam's transgression and that all are under condemnation. But it also tells us about your uh, love demonstrated at the cross, that you sent your only son to die on the cross as our Savior, to pay the penalty for our sin that we might have eternal life simply by trusting in Him. It's not up to us to do something, to try to uh, improve ourselves, to try to somehow overcome the deficit of sin, because that's impossible. But what is impossible for man is possible with you. And you have provided us with a perfect Savior who completely paid the penalty for sin so that the issue is simply trusting in your provision of salvation through Jesus Christ who died for our sins. He paid the penalty as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening, continue our study on what you teach in your word regarding the use, the proper use of financial resources, that we may be, uh, have our understanding expanded and challenged and that uh, we may use this as not only in dealing with our own personal finances, but also in understanding uh, broader macroeconomic principles that affect nations, governments, and the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, as we've been studying in Acts, we came to this passage in Acts 4, uh, 32, and uh, according to the label that's put on the lessons, Acts uh, 4, 6, 432 to 516, and really we're not in Acts, we're, we're, that's sort of a jumping off point for a topical study on economics. The Bible has a lot to say about money, in fact I've heard some people say the Bible says almost as much about money as it does about salvation, a tremendous amount about money, about economics, economic terms are used to describe the transaction that took place on the cross, redemption, expiation, forgiveness in the sense of the cancellation of a debt. All of these terms are used to describe what took place uh, on the cross when Jesus Christ, what did he do? He paid the penalty on our behalf. And so we have these, these economic terms. Now, if we believe that God is the creator of everything, and God is not just part of creation, but he is different and distinct from creation, that he had a plan, a blueprint in his head, in his omniscience, and that he created everything. And so that everything within creation from the smallest subatomic particle to the largest galaxy in the universe, everything intersects, interrelates, and interacts with everything else. And so you can't really say anything as uh, Cornelius Van Til used to say, you can't say any, anything about anything without saying something about everything. 
Just think about that a little bit before you go to sleep at night, but that's true. You can't say anything about anything, no matter what it is, without revealing something about your view of everything in the universe. And everything that you and I look at in life, whether it's a subatomic particle, whether we're looking through a telescope at the moon, at a planet, at the solar system, whether we're dealing with uh, quadratic equations, uh, whether we're dealing with simple mathematics, isn't it amazing that evolution, the whole concept of evolution, which is predicated upon uh, the assumption that everything in the universe is random, everything is pure chance, and yet 2 plus 2 is still 4, always has been and always will be. That runs completely counter to the whole presupposition, the underlying assumption to evolutionary thought, which is that everything changes, everything changes, and and there are there's nothing fixed. Everything evolves. That's macro evolution. But if we believe that God of the Bible exists, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he's revealed himself to be a certain way, what was interesting, I'm going to take a little rabbit trail here. Uh, what, what is interesting is I was out on a, uh, a, a website the other day, uh, a link that someone had sent me regarding a, a YouTube video. And as I was looking at it, one of the things I do at times is, is to read through the comments on the video. And on this particular video, and I've heard these comments from years from many different people, from many different backgrounds, many different de- de- denominations, religious groups, whatever uh, they might be, somebody would make a statement that, uh, regarding this, this video and said, uh, how can they say that God is this way? Something specific was said about God by somebody else who had uh, made a comment. And they get into this, this argument, how can you say God can be whatever he wants to be? And they miss the obvious, and nobody ever responds this way. God has revealed to us who he is. When we say that God cannot and will not do X, Y, or Z, what we are really saying is that God has revealed in his word that he will never do X, Y, or Z. Or God has revealed in his word that he is a certain way. It is not man arguing from his own ideas, opinions, that God is not a woman, but God, and neither is God male. He's not male or female. God has revealed himself a certain way. And so when we say that God is not X, or I used to get into discussions like this with those who were charismatic saying, well, you're putting God in a box. You're saying God can't heal anybody today. God does, or God doesn't give someone the gift of healing. I say, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm not putting God in a box. I'm telling you God has revealed in his word that he is not doing that today. That's not my opinion. I'm just telling you what the Bible sa- says, what God has revealed about himself. But the shorthand version is, is we say, well, God's not X, Y, or Z. And what we're really saying is God has revealed to us in his word certain truths, certain eternal realities about himself uh, that mean that he is a certain way. He knows all of the knowable. And if you take the time to just stop and reflect upon that and reflect upon the fact that we have the order in the universe that we have because there is a God who is the master planner, master architect, 
who designed everything from the smallest particle to the largest entity and all of the interconnections in between so that when we come to study anything within that creation, we can extrapolate from a known principle to unknown principles because we know there is stability and order in the universe. And what was true uh, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago in terms of mathematic principles, in terms of physics, in terms of of, uh, meteorological principles, in terms of uh, any uh, universal law uh, related to creation that you know is just as true today. And if evolution were true, then that would then that would change. Well, God not only created laws related to the physical universe, laws related to biology, everything will uh, procreate according to its kind. Now, some people have, uh, in a good sense, tried to make kind equal species. And then what happens is scientists come along and say, oh, well, you have some cross-species generation. It's true. Kind, the biblical kind is not equivalent to the uh, our category of species. In fact, what creationists have discovered and what they work with is that the biblical kind is probably somewhere between uh, family and genus. It is much broader than the category of just simply species. And see, so so what happens is somebody makes, tries to popularize something, bring it down to a level people can understand, use a phrase like that, and see, and, and they'll say something. Everything procreates according to its species. That's just not true, and science can prove that. That and that's not what kind means in scripture. So you have uh, often the Bible is critiqued by people because there are failures to properly understand what is stated in the original language. And so often misinterpretations and mistranslations are critiqued, and rightly so. We have to understand what the original text means, and we have to approach the text with the assumption that God God is speaking. If you don't approach with that assumption, then you will approach with the assumption that man is speaking. Those are the two alternatives, only two alternatives. And if, and if you face it with, with the assumption that man is speaking, then you will be on a trajectory to uh, doubt everything that is that is said and to end up using it as some, using the Bible or, or referring to the Bible as some sort of legend or myth. Uh, if we give, if we start with the assumption that it's the Word of God and give it the benefit of the doubt, you will always discover that the word of God is true. But if you start with the assumption that it's probably the word of man and therefore it has contradictions, then you will look for contradictions and you will jump to a conclusion that there is a contradiction without going the extra mile to truly study out the details to resolve what apparently seems to be a contradiction. But just as the Bible speaks of these uh, physical laws, biological laws, there are social laws. There are social absolutes that God built into creation. And we have studied those as the divine institutions. And the first divine institution is individual responsibility, that every individual is responsible to God, 
for his relationship to God, his relationship to other human beings. So that, that vertical relationship to God has to do with his spiritual life. The horizontal relationship to other people in terms of society is often, it has to do with the social life. And by using that term social life, I'm not talking about parties and having a good time. I'm talking about how human beings organize and relate to one another within a social structure. And the Greeks had a word for this, and when it involved a city, they called it the polis, the city, and that is the origin of our English word politics. Uh, The Greeks also talked about the administration of a city, and that was they used the word oikonomia, which had to do with stewardship or administration, which is where we get our English word economy. And so concepts such as politics and economics ultimately relate to social structure, how man organizes himself in terms of society. This impacts things such as especially in terms of marriage and family, that God established certain absolutes regarding marriage and family and government later on. These are the second, third, and fourth divine institutions, and then the fifth divine institution is a nation, and that these these social absolutes, which we refer to as the divine institutions, are designed to perpetuate and preserve stability within the human race. And when they are violated, when man, the creature, comes along and says, well, for example, we can do away with marriage. Well, that has incredible consequences. It has consequences economically. Just think of the economic consequences of divorce. Think about the economic consequences upon children. Uh, Well, you can talk about all the negative ones. There's probably a positive economic consequence. There's a lot of marriage counselors and psychotherapists who are kept in business because of divorce. Uh, But it it is destructive personally to the... Uh, stability of, pers- their, of personal wealth and money and personal finances, and it o- only gets worse. And when the more rampant that is in society, the more uh, instability that you have uh, in, on, in terms of individual finances. And so it also, you look at marriage and trying to redefine marriage as not between a man and a woman, but between any two people. And why stop at people? Uh, why stop it too? Why not go to uh, polytheism? Now, the other uh, morning, on Sunday morning, I made some comments about Mormonism, and it strikes me as somewhat ironical that the Mormons have been very strong supporters uh, against gay, against homosexual, same-sex marriage. But, see, the principle is, it, I find it somewhat of a, uh, 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 of a contradiction because once you redefine marriage... And you can say that, well, marriage can be between two adults. Why not make it three adults? They, the logical consequence of this change in definition of marriage means that ultimately they can get the polygamy that is really inherent in part of their, uh, their religious system. Somebody asked me this evening about what I said the other day in terms of Mormonism. There's a number of, of books that you could go to to read uh, about uh, Mormonism. 
Walter Martin, who founded an organization that is, uh, I forget the name of it now, but Walter Martin wrote several books on the cults, and so you can read some of the things by Walter Martin. Also, there's a couple of books by John Ankerberg. Ankerberg has a TV show that's on uh, uh, some of the different channels at different times, and he always investigates different different religious groups, and he'll usually have on a representative of one group and a representative of Orthodox biblical Christianity for for extended debates. And he has a, a small book called Fast Facts, on Mormonism, which is an excellent resource, and then he has a much larger book uh, on 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 uh, on Mormonism. So you might want to look at one of, one of those two. But uh, as as I was stating, once you begin to redefine marriage, then that has economic consequences. You redefine uh, the 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 limitations, or you try to extend the limitations of government, and you start giving government the opportunity to manipulate uh, prices and to manipulate the marketplace, then just look at that's exactly what we have today. When, when each of these areas of, of uh, divine institutions have their boundaries, they have their areas of, uh, where there's responsibility, they have their areas that are outside of their responsibility, and when government starts uh, trying to control the details of economics, which is far beyond the finite knowledge of any human being, uh, then you start having major, major consequences. And we're seeing that in, on an international level right now, and all because man in his hubris has thought that he can control economic law and redefine economic, economic laws. And whenever you get away from the basic principles of personal responsibility, and you start t- letting the government be responsible for uh, health maintenance, for personal maintenance, for uh, taking care of a person so that they um, uh, they are guaranteed a certain amount of income. Once you start that kind of manipulation, it has so many. There's so many unknown factors and so many unintended consequences that even though it may appear to work for a time, eventually it collapses. And whether you want to call what the Bible teaches free market economics or capitalism, and I understand that within uh, pure economic thought, each of these have specific uh, definitions. Capitalism is technically not spoken of until you get into the uh, 16th or 17th century. Prior to that, you had mercantilism, you had other things, but but I prefer to, to uh, identify it as just uh, personal responsibility for f- your financial affairs. It's not the government's responsibility, it's the individual's responsibility. It's not my, the government's responsibility to take care of me in, in my senior years. It's my responsibility to biblically to save for those years. And if I fail, then it's my responsibility. It's not the government's responsibility. Now, I recognize that under the Mosaic Law, there was a limit, there was limited safety net. But the, but the responsibility for those who fall through the cracks, those who, for reasons that have nothing to do with their personal responsibility and their personal decisions, and who end up impoverished or destitute. It is the responsibility of others their indivi- based on their individual volition, free will, 
and uh, grace orientation, compassion to take care of those uh, who don't don't have, who are unfortunate. And that is, it's never placed upon the government. The only time, as we'll see in our study tonight, that God condemns the government is when the government of Israel perverted the Mosaic law and and put a burden uh, the, uh, on the poor people and abused their own position. Now, just by way of review, I pointed out that there were several key uh, anchor points within uh, the scriptures that give us a parameter or guideline for developing a biblical view of economics. The first is a personal individual responsibility or accountability. Second is right the right to the rewards of personal labor, to that, that I have a right to ownership of all that is produced by my decisions, and no one else has a right to that. Uh, the only right that the government has is a limited right to taxation, but it is not the role of the government to redistribute wealth on the basis of someone else's standard of what is uh, acceptable, what is right and wrong. Um, then we had the looked at the imputation of value, uh, the principle of private property, the recognition in the scripture of private ownership of property, but ultimately everything is is owned by God, so private property is all under the sovereignty of God. Uh, next, we saw the that the Bible recognizes the validity of wealth accumulation. The Bible never, ever, not one time, declares it unrighteous to be filthy rich. Not once. What's wrong is how that wealth is used. But it is not wrong in and of itself to accumulate incredible amounts of wealth. In fact, if that is done ethically and biblically, it is encouraged because it shows personal responsibility, hard work, uh, labor, all of these virtues that are, uh, that, that are praised within the Scriptures. And then it is a test as to how that wealth is used. And many people, when they get very wealthy, many people, even if they don't, have a terrible problem with wealth. And they squander it, they abuse it, they uh, seek to hold on to it in, uh, for their own personal gain and uh, pleasure, and that is a failure of the test. But it's not the government to come in and straighten out everybody's test scores either educationally or in terms of their uh, their financial and or how they use their fi- finances. So the Bible recognizes the validity of wealth accumulation. In fact, if you read the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, wealth is a blessing of God. And it is a blessing of God that is not to be redistributed by the government who thinks that somehow you have been blessed too much. See, it's not the government's test. That will just end up destroying the economy. Then the last two that we looked at had to do with the safety net for those who are truly less fortunate for whatever reason. One is tithing, which was uh, 10% tax, uh, 10% income tax, flat tax, straight across the board, rich or poor, whether you had little or none, 10% every third year went into the coffers of 
the temple in Israel in order to support the widows, the orphans, those that were less fortunate. And then uh, where we ended was looking at the whole issue of personal and individual responsibility. That's where the Word of God places responsibility for taking care of those who are less fortunate. And historically, we see that the, the institutions out of which that, that came up until uh, the late 19th century when suddenly as Christianity and Judaism in terms of Orthodox Judaism were, are rejected in terms of any kind of biblical authority, the shift is it, it goes to government. But historically, orphanages and hospitals and places where uh, the elderly would be taken care of were taken were the result of the church and of uh, and Jewish organizations for taking care of their own. It was that emphasis on personal responsibility, not government uh, responsibility. In fact, last year when I was in uh, when I was in Kiev. And I had the opportunity to be taken around to see a number of the uh, facilities that the Jewish organizations have established in Ukraine, which take care of the elderly. It shows the value of of the of the community of the community. This isn't government supported; it's individually supported. It's supported by the uh, by Jews around the world, and they do a. Fabulous job, absolutely incredible, and it is just an absolute indictment of the division of Christians. The Christians can't get together and unite over anything like that because we, we uh, actually the reason is probably because we make a higher, a more important, um, uh, give more importance to doctrine, and so we've divided so much we can't unite to take care of anybody. And so the government uh, moves into uh, moves into that vacuum. But I was just extremely impressed with how uh, Jewish organizations take care of their own and take care of many others. But it's not the government. That money comes from individual donations, from individual responsibility, and not because the government is telling them to. So we looked at passages such as Leviticus 19.15, which establishes the basic principle. It's just grace, folks, just grace. Every individual is responsible to love their neighbor, to take care of the other. And as we see in the Gospels, in Jesus' account of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, the neighbor is anyone that comes into your periphery. It's not someone necessarily someone you know. It may be someone you don't know. It may be someone from a social class you despise. It may be someone who is not very physically uh, or personally attractive to you, but we, uh, you take care of them because of the principle to uh, love your neighbors yourself. I put up Leviticus uh, 19.15 should be uh, Leviticus 18, uh, love your neighbors yourself. That's the principle I'm getting at, not the one that's up there on the, on the screen. We looked at some other basic Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. The Lord says, I am the Lord. Then we get into these other passages that emphasize the fact that we're not to take into account a person's economic condition in make, coming to judicial decisions. In the courtroom, when the issue is criminality or the issue has to do with civil suit, 
The one thing that should never be taken into account is the wealth of one side or the poverty of the other side. Nobody should be given the benefit of the doubt because they're rich or because they are poor. And yet we find that happening too often today, and it happens across uh, the social and political spectrum. And that is injustice no matter uh, what it is. Uh, it's defined in Leviticus 19.15. Uh, I also spent some time last time talking about the issue of usury. And this was a major problem. If you don't know your history, it was a major problem throughout the Middle Ages because usury was not correctly understood or defined. And so in the Roman Catholic theology, usury was defined as as charging interest for a loan. Any kind of interest on a loan, payment of interest on a loan, was considered usury. And this stifled business and it stifled development and it, it basically would not allow for the development of any kind of free market uh, economy. But there were groups here and there that began to uh, work out different uh, tricky ways to get around this. Some of them did it by taking out a loan in one currency and then through various means of currency trading would bring it back around and make a little money on the money. And so this was a tricky way in which they, uh, they, they got around some of the usury laws. But when we look at the way usury is handled in the, in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, it has the idea of, of charging interest of anyone who is poor, someone who is destitute, someone who has lost everything. And so the loan is a loan not to develop in terms of business. The loan is not being given in order to uh, capitalize a, a, a venture. The loan is being given in order to help somebody from uh, from completely losing uh, losing everything, their their uh, so passages like uh, uh, Deuteronomy 24:14, uh, "You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land." That's the general principle. Don't oppress. Don't take advantage of someone who is uh, who is poor or without. Exodus 22:25, "If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you." You shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. See, that, that, that's the King James Version, which doesn't handle this correctly. The word for interest and also sometimes translated uh, usury is the Hebrew word nesik. It's related to the Hebrew word for serpent. And literally, it means to bite. And uh, so the idea was that uh, this was a, a bite. In fact, uh, interest as it was charged... Uh, in in uh, uh, in Judaism at the time was was quite high. Um, in um, in his commentary on the Proverbs, Dr. Bruce Waltke, who in many ways is one of the more excellent uh, Hebrew scholars, his theology sometimes is a little off the charts, and Bruce can be just everywhere sometimes. But but he does have some brilliant observations on. Uh, the words and meaning in his commentary on, on the Proverbs, which is uh, uh, just a, a brilliant masterful work, but you always have to read Bruce with uh, a, a lot of the discernment. He writes, in the Bible, nesic, that's our word here, nesic, occurs ten times and refers to the charge for borrowed money. 
which practice in biblical times came to about 30% of the amount borrowed. Think about that, 30% interest. In half of these passages, three in the Pentateuch, Exodus 22:24, which is a passage I'm looking at here. It's 24 in the Hebrew text, 25 in the Greek and in English. Leviticus 25, 36, and 37, and 2 in Ezekiel based on the Pentateuch. It explicitly refers to interest from the poor. In Psalm 15, 5, and Ezekiel 22:12, that precise reference is not as clear, but the latter is in the context of keeping the Mosaic Covenant. So he goes on to say, uh, make a number of other observations related to this in some, uh, in some different passages, but he comes to a, con- a conclusion where he states, most scholars agree that all ten passages refer to loans made as, quote, acts of charity for the relief of destitution as opposed to loans of a commercial nature for expanding business. So this isn't just my opinion. This is the opinion of a number of many biblical scholars today is that usury wasn't charging interest for business loans. It was charging uh, interest from those who could not pay it, those who were destitute, those who were poor, as a way of taking advantage of them and uh, basically destroying their ability uh, to take care of themselves. So we looked at usury last time, some of the different passages, such as uh, Leviticus uh, 25, uh, 35 to 38, which talks about how uh, the Jews under the Mosaic law were to uh, take care of others under the law in terms of poverty. It says if one of your brethren, that would be another Israelite, becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a, like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest. That's that. Don't take advantage of the, of the poor by charging interest. The context here, again, is the, the one who is impoverished. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. In other words, this is just grace orientation, taking care of those who are destitute. It was the responsibility of the Jewish community, the Israelite community in the ancient world to take care of the, uh, of, of the poor, not the government, but the individual. Proverbs has a lot to say about how the poor are treated. Proverbs 28.8 states, one who increases his possessions by usury and extortion. Actually, the, the two words here, it's not extortion. The word is, the, is another word that is also translated usury at times, and it, often it's simply translated as interest, but both words uh, indicate um, uh, charging interest to the poor. One who increases his possessions by usury and extortion, that is charging interest to the poor, taking advantage of them, gathers it for, for him who will pity the poor. In other words, the assumption is that ultimately God is the one who will bring justice, and though one person takes advantage of the poor, uh, he in turn will be judged by God, and the one who will ultimately benefit is the one who has true compassion for the poor because God, the Supreme Court of Heaven, will eventually right all wrongs. This is uh, verse 8 of Proverbs 28 is related to uh, or should be understood within the context of verse 3 in Proverbs 28, where you have a poor man who oppresses the poor. 
is like a driving rain which leaves no food. So not only do you have those who are wealthy who oppress the poor, but you also have other poor people who oppress the poor. And the principle is that it is wrong to take advantage of those who do not have. And that is a violation of Leviticus uh, 18, 19, and the whole principle of loving your neighbor as yourself. Passages uh, in the prophets. There are many passages in the prophets. I've chosen just one. Uh, this is a uh, an indictment against... Uh, um, uh, excuse me, this is not an indictment against Israel. This is a passage in Ezekiel 18 that is dealing with the responsibility of the sins of the father and the punishment for the, of the father and the responsibility of the sins of the son and punishment for the son. And the theme in this section, in this chapter in Ezekiel 18, is that the son is not punished for the, the sins of the father unless the son is repeating the sins of the father. But if the father has committed all of these sins and lists a number of violations of the, of the Mosaic law, uh, and, and the father commits those sins, then he will be punished. If the son commits those sins, he will be punished. But if he has withdrawn his hand from the poor, and in context that means he's not taking advantage of the poor, uh, the one who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or interest, but has instead executed my judgments, that is, treated them with grace and honor and um, and and treated them well, and walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father, he shall surely live. And so once again you see how God is, is emphasizing the fact that it is grace orientation and true compassion towards the poor, and he really, and there, there's no qualification, you don't see an asterisk saying, you know, the poor that is, uh, that is poor only from uh, other per people's decisions as opposed to his own bad decisions. It's just that if they're impoverished, then we should treat them in grace. It doesn't matter what the cause was. Well, that brings me to the next point, and that is, what are the biblical causes for poverty? And it's, it's similar to when I've talked about suffering before, that we basically suffer for one of two reasons. We suffer from our own bad decisions or we suffer from bad decisions of others. It's basically it. Uh, you have poverty because of your bad decisions, or you are poor because of, and I'm just going to say it this way, decisions of others, because I'm going to include the sovereignty of God here. There are two causes. The first cause is due to a responsibility for making bad decisions on the part of the poor. And the second category is decisions made by others. And I have uh, eight different categories or causes listed here that I've derived from Scripture. The first two have to do with uh, violation, personal violation of the first divine institution. Someone has, has violated the, the first divine institution of personal responsibility. They are being irresponsible in their use of money. So first of all, it's due to personal laziness. Proverbs talks about this. We'll see a couple of passages in a minute. Uh, or failure to work. They're, they're lazy. They, they fail to work. Or the second reason is because uh, for personal uh, 
cause is that they make foolish decisions with regard to their their money. They spend it on the wrong thing. They overspend. They get into debt. They gamble it away. So they're either poor for because they fail to work or they're poor because they have mismanaged their money. In both of those cases, their poverty is due to their uh, irresponsible decisions. Then the next, the next six categories I have are, are based on the decision of others. Most of these are bad except for the first one. My third cause for poverty has to do with the sovereignty of God. God chooses to take us through tests of adversity, in this case tests of poverty, in order to teach us to trust him. So we can be doing everything right. We can be diligent. We can be working hard. We can be managing our money well. We can make, be making the best decisions we can make in light of the knowledge available to us. And yet, for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to ever get us ahead because God is taking us through a, a test of adversity, a poverty test, teaching us to trust, trust in him. Now, the others are basically negative in terms of others that we are associated with. Uh, number four, this is uh, specifically others we're associated with. This may mean government decisions. There are people who have lived in different countries, different nations, where they have governments that have been abusive, tyrannical, uh, have taxed them beyond their capabilities, have wiped out any any incentive for business or agricultural development or anything of that nature. Uh, I can think of the famines in Ethiopia back in the, in the 90s. Uh, many of these were due to just the uh, uh, irresponsible use of money by, by, the, by governments. So we can be in a nation where there is a corrupt government, and because the government is corrupt and the people who work within the, the government or work with the government, whether it's bureaucracy or some sort of, of uh, business oligarchy, it destroys the, any, any possibility of economic blessing, and the citizens suffer, and they don't really know why, because they, they're, not, uh, they're not aware and they're not knowledgeable about all of the corruption that is going on inside of government. So uh, government is one that we're associated with. Another can be corporate decisions. We can work for a company like Enron, for example, and due to no fault of our, of our own, the uh, powers that be are misusing their, the money, the finances, the profits of the corporation and get involved in criminality and eventually uh, things fall apart and we are left without a career, without a job, and we are the ones that suffer. Uh, we can uh, be associated indirectly with any number of different different organizations, corporations, nations, whatever, where these things have nothing to do with our decisions, and they're completely beyond our control, and we suffer suffer the consequences. A fifth category I had is just uh, like market decisions. We have no control over the marketplace. And, for example, you may think that you have a really good idea, a really good investment, and it's just another Edsel. It just isn't going to go anywhere. It's not profitable. It doesn't take off. It doesn't make it in the, in the free market. And you've invested money 
time, energy into something, and you lose everything uh, as, a re- as a result. And that is not because you've made a necessarily a bad or uninformed decision. It is just that, that maybe you came along in 1955 and you decided to invest all of your money in, uh, who was it, Whammo, and just at the time that the hula hoop went south and Whammo was left with warehouses, hundreds and hundreds of warehouses with thousands and thousands of hula hoops in them, and the fad disappeared. Or maybe you came along in 1952 and you've seen uh, you've seen skins go from uh, $2 a pelt to $25 a pelt because Walt Disney did a little series on um, Davy Crockett and every uh, every baby baby boomer boy had to have a coonskin cap. And so now you're going to invest in coonskins and oops, there goes the coonskin market and now you've lost your money. So we all have made decisions like that probably that where we invest our time, our effort, or our money in things that uh, look like a really good decision and then the market took it somewhere else. Sixth, personal decisions or associations. Somebody in our family, our father, our mother, our uh, brother, sister, husband, wife, somebody takes the gold and just poorly invests it and loses everything. And now the family is left without because of someone else's uh, irresponsible decision, going back to uh, reason number two, foolish decisions with money. Seventh is criminality. We can be the, um, we, we can be the victim of, uh, of a Ponzi scheme by somebody. We've invested, invested our money with someone who we thought we could trust. Everything looked like we could trust them, and it turned out that we can't trust them. Uh, we can invest money in any number of different things or with people we trust and for any of the uh, reasons above. But here I'm focusing on criminality. It's just stolen from us. We, we invested in something, and it was a fraud. We were, uh, we were defrauded of our uh, financial resources. And then eighth, there can be natural disasters where there are any earthquakes, there are tornadoes, there's hurricanes, there's any number of things that come along, and they basically wipe out uh, whatever wealth that we have accumulated. So there are a number of different reasons that people can become impoverished. I could add health, that everything is going great, and we have saved in, in, uh, tremendous amounts of money, but we, because of the radical increase in health costs, suddenly we don't have enough resources to take care of all of the bills. And, uh, and, and the government's not going to step in either uh, and shouldn't step in, but they are, and that's, going to, that's another issue, and that's going to really destroy the whole health care system. Some of the passages that relate to this, Proverbs 10.4, he who has a slack hand becomes poor. That's because he's not working hard. The imagery of a slack hand, it's, it's not firm, it's not working, it's not putting his hand to the plow or working in the fields. It is slack, it is lazy. So he who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Wealth comes from hard work. There's no uh, easy answer. Uh, this, is, this whole idea of laziness is expanded in Proverbs 24, verses 30 to 34. 
I've often quoted Proverbs 24:33 a little facetiously towards those who like to sleep beyond 5:30 or 6 in the morning. Being a morning person, I like to do that. Um, of course, they quote back to me the passage in Proverbs that talks about cursed is a man who wakes someone with a loud voice in the morning. Proverbs 24:30 says, "I went by the field of the lazy man." And by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. See, in the parallelism here, the person who is lazy or not diligent is equivalent to the person who's empty of understanding. He, he's, not, he's not thinking. He's ignorant. Uh, and there it was, all overgrown with thorns, verse 31 says. Its surfaces were covered with nettles. Now, where do we read about thorns and nettles in the Scripture? Ah, Genesis 3, this is a result of the curse. So rather than labor, there is a lack of labor, and so the curse is taken over. The field is covered with thorns and nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. There's no protection anymore. Verse 32, when I saw it, I considered it well and looked on it and received instruction. See, that's something we ought to do in life is to observe what's going on around us and learn from other people's successes and failures. One thing we learn is that we don't learn from other people's failures or successes. And then he personalizes the uh, uh, the thinking of the lazy person. I'll just sleep a little later today. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. He's making fun of the person who wants to sleep late. So shall your poverty come like a prowler. It'll sneak up on you and your need like an armed man. In other words, because you failed to be diligent, failed to be responsible in your work, in your labor, in the way you've handled your financial resources, then it looks like things are going well, but the consequences aren't immediate. They come as a surprise down the road. Proverbs 21.17 states, He who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. You're spending all of your money on the enjoyable luxuries of life rather than taking care of the responsible things in life. Uh, Proverbs 20:13. Do not love sleep lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes. In other, that's just an idiom for wake up, get up, get to work. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with bread. That's the result of hard work is there is plenty of food in the, uh, in the pantry. Now we get in looking at what the attitude towards the believer should be towards the person who is poor. And this is based, again, on, on grace orientation, not having a judgmental attitude towards those who are poor. We don't know why they are poor. In some cases we do, but it's not up to us to effect judgment upon them. Proverbs 14.21, He who despises his neighbor, the neighbor in context here is the poor neighbor, the one who is impoverished. He who despises his neighbor sins. Now, we may not like the reason certain people are poor. We may have a culture of poverty that's been generated by the war on poverty and the welfare system that has... Uh, created a culture where people want to take advantage of the government 
and they want to perpetuate poverty so that the government will take care of them. And it's easy to slip into mental attitude sins towards a person like that, but we have to remember God has not made us their judge. He is the judge. He who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. Why? Well, other Proverbs will explain that because when we operate in grace towards others, whether the, and remember, grace means what? Undeserved mercy. See, too often our attitude is, well, we shouldn't help that poor person because they don't deserve it. Well, you don't deserve salvation either, so let's get over it and deal with it on a grace basis. Uh, Proverbs 14.31, He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker. That poor person, whatever the reason is that he's down there under the overpass at Blaylock and I-10, is still created in the image and likeness of God. And in God's scale of values, he has value because he's in the image and likeness of God. doesn't matter what else he's done. doesn't matter what his failures may be. Uh, he's still in the image and likeness of God. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him, meaning God, has mercy on the needy. Now, that's a powerful statement there that is not one that we normally think of. The one who honors God has mercy on the needy because they deserve it? Not any more than we deserve salvation. Proverbs 17, 5 echoes that same thought. He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. All giving whether you're giving to the church, whether you're giving to a missionary, whether you're giving to somebody who is destitute, is giving to the Lord. That's Proverbs 19:17. He who has pity on the poor. And that pity is not a good translation here. It's more the idea of mercy. He who has mercy on the poor lends to the Lord. Who are you giving to? You're giving to the Lord. You're giving because of who God is and understanding grace. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he, God, will pay back what he has given. In other words, because we look to the Lord to sustain us in our logistical needs, we can give to others. And it doesn't matter whether that person responsibly or irresponsibly uses it, or let me put it this way, we may think they're going to use it irresponsibly. We need, I'm not saying that we should just give to anybody and everybody whenever there's an opportunity. We have limited resources. But we are to support those within our periphery who have need, even though they might misuse it or abuse it. Now, we have to use some common sense regarding that because we've all had the experiences where we, we're, we're forgiving to somebody or we help someone, and they take advantage of that. And they may take advantage of it more than once. And I, I, what comes to my mind at this point is when Peter says, Lord, how many times do we forgive somebody? Seven times? And the Lord says 70 times seven. And we think, well, wait a minute, Lord, they're just taking advantage of us. But that's grace. That doesn't mean, though, that you should be foolish. And there's an important line there. I'm not sure how to articulate it, but it comes with maturity in the Christian life 
where you begin, you also can put stipulations on certain things. I know that there are those of us who are dealing with family members, either parents or children, who are in uh, financially difficult situations, and they come to us for help. Sometimes, because we know all of the circumstances, we need to put stipulations on that help because they, we need to continue to teach, even if we're 70 and they're 40, we need to continue to teach responsibility for actions. And sometimes we have to, uh, in those circumstances, refrain from giving because what that does is encourage further irresponsibility and the failure to lose the lesson. So there are complexities, I understand, to this issue. It's not always as simple as you might have thought I was saying, that somebody needs money, you just give to them. There are a lot of different uh, attendant circumstances that we have to be aware of in helping someone who is in destitute circumstances. The point I'm making throughout this is simply that our attitude towards the person who is destitute is not to be an attitude of being judgmental, but is an attitude of grace. The second point that I am making is that Scripture is teaching that the responsibility for taking care of the one who is destitute is the individual, not the government. And this goes throughout the Scriptures. Proverbs 21.13 says, Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. This is, this is echoed in Jesus' statement in the gospel that if you are coming to the temple with a sacrifice and you recall that you have uh, offended your brother, then you need to go and seek forgiveness from them before you come to the Lord for forgiveness. Uh, if you are uh, harsh to the poor, those who are destitute, then um, when you cry for help, Who's going to pay attention to you? Proverbs 28, 27, He who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. Divine discipline. Now we get into other passages in the Old Testament. I just want to take the next couple of minutes to hit these and next time come back and talk about some New Testament principles. Isaiah three fourteen, 14, uh, the Lord brings an indictment, a rebuke against Israel and the government of Israel not because they haven't given to the poor in the sense that they've provided everything that the poor need, but because they've taken advantage of the poor. They've got, they've got a situation where they are, they are taking advantage of the poor and increasing their impoverishment in order to just make, make uh, the uh, government uh, wealthier. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes, for you have eaten up the vineyard, the plunder of the poor is in your houses. It's overtaxation, and it is destroy, it's destroying the capability of the people to produce a living, and when that happens, it destroys the middle class and the uh, poor class because they don't have the capability to earn because the government takes what they have earned. In verse 15, God says, What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, says the Lord God of hosts? This is done through overtaxation, 
where it destroys the ability of people to earn, to save for the, for the future. It destroys, uh, you can make application of this to destroying, uh, uh, destroying the value of the dollar. You know, the most, the, the most hidden form of taxation is inflation. And inflation destroys the value of the dollar. And when the government is engaged in inflationary policy, it is oppressing the people. And that is an application of these, of these verses. You also have other verses that talk about honoring those who are in destitute situations, the widow, uh, the orphan, Exodus 22.22, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Uh, Deuteronomy 10.18, he, meaning God, administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Deuteronomy 24.17, you shall not pervert justice due to the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. Remember, the issue here is the issue here is justice and righteousness. It's not giving undue favor to the wealthy or uh, undue favor to those who are poor, and so there's not a perversion of justice here. Going back to Exodus 23, uh, 3 and Exodus uh, 30, uh, verse 15. Now, when we get into the New Testament, you have the same kind of problem. You have a problem of giving undue favor to the wealthy in James 2, do you, and which dishonors the poor, showing a favoritism based on, on wealth. Now, I'm going to stop here, and we're going to come back next time and get into New Testament passages and wrap up our study on, um, on biblical teaching, on economics and finances, and then we'll come back and see how uh, it helps us to understand what is going on in Acts 5, and six, as those are these early Christians are coming together, uh, selling property, giving all that they have. Why? They're taking care of the poor. They're taking care of the orphans. They're taking care of the widows. It is an application of uh, Old Testament sense of giving and grace orientation, but recognizing that it's the responsibility of the Christian community to take care of its own, which is emphasized again and again in the New Testament. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to reflect upon your word, and to reflect upon all that you have revealed in it, that you have given us patterns and principles that must be honored. Otherwise, both personal and national finances and economics collapse and destruction occurs. Chaos ensues because that is the trend, the normal trend within Satan's cosmic system. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've been studying, what we've learned, because this is a principle that is emphasized in your word, that we should deal with one another always in grace and always loving our neighbor as ourselves, treating them with honor and respect, no matter what their circumstances or conditions might be, simply because they are created in your image and likeness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.